Hot Takes. Welcome to Hot Take, the podcast where we talk about the climate crisis and all the ways we are talking and not talking about it. I'm Amy Westervelt. And I'm Marianne's Heckler. This episode, we are going to be talking about a concept in journalism that is often talked about, but very rarely dissected and well understood. And it is called both siderism. Or is it both sidesism? We don't know. We're going to find out. It's both. <laughs> it's both. Both are equally oh, good, Mary. Okay, cool. <laughs> so there's both sides to the both sides. Perfect. <laughs> Yes, yes. And we're going to talk to probably one of the best people to talk to us about that, which is Lewis Mm -hmm. Wallace. He is a trans journalist who wrote a book called The View from Somewhere and produced and reported and hosted the podcast by the same name that digs into this this idea of quote-unquote objectivity in journalism and where it comes from, who it serves, who it doesn't serve, and both sidesism is a huge piece of that exactly. puzzle. Exactly. So we're happy to have yeah. him here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we're going to get more into his story um, and how he, you know, sort of came to that conclusion um, and how this affects mm-hmm. climate, but also where it really started in American journalism. So without further ado, you yep. ready? It's time to talk about climate. Lewis Wallace, welcome to Hot Take. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, we were hoping you could start a little bit with um, your your background in journalism and how exactly you came to looking at quote unquote objectivity in journalism and what we're going to be talking about today, which is this kind of both sides approach that so many folks take to stories. Sure. So I always knew that there was a view from somewhere in journalism, you know, that there mm-hmm. was such thing as a neutral observer, an outside observer. And, and part of why I knew that or think of myself as having always known that is because for a long time before I was a journalist, I was an activist and really specifically an activist around um, trans and queer identity. I came out as trans and queer pretty, pretty young and um, got involved in activism in part because it was just sort of necessary in order to be an out trans person in the context that I was in. And so um, this idea that there was any such thing as a news media that was covering people in general, you know, fairly and neutrally uh, was really exposed because Trans people, if we were covered at all uh, in the 90s, were covered in a really dismissive and sort of terrible way. And it was so clearly, you know, the view from the point of view of uh, non-trans people uh, dominating Mm. that space. And so um, that was knowledge, lived experience, you know, experiential knowledge that I brought into the world of journalism when I started working as a news reporter and then um, after spending about five years in public radio uh, doing kind of mainstream reporting and sometimes I would say both sides type reporting Mm -hmm. or often actually both sides type reporting, uh, it it became a real conflict for me Um, and this was especially after I witnessed and reported on Donald Trump's campaign and his election and uh, his inauguration. And, you know, I came in to work 
on a Monday morning to these repeated news clips of Kellyanne Conway, Trump's press secretary at the time, saying alternative facts, alternative facts. Uh, he was just, the president was presenting alternative facts. And so suddenly in an effort to seem to be fair toward the president, you know, the press was covering um, his set of quote unquote facts. <laughs> uh, sort of saying, well, he sees it this way and other people see it that way. And that to me was so outrageous and so just such an egregious distortion of what it means for the media to do fair coverage um, and a disturbing distortion in the context of, you know, a rising white supremacy and rising transphobia to sort of say, oh, well, if we're going to, you know, show, say that he did something racist, we should also show that he did something, you know, good or whatever. <laughs> um, and th that was just so ridiculous to me, especially coming from sort of my own lived experience. Um, I wrote something about it on a blog, on my personal blog, and I ended up getting fired from my job in national media you know, over that sort of tiff. And so for me, that was a call to uh, go deep on this question of like, where did this come from? About I love that you were like, yeah, that means I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty <Yeah>. much. <laughs> Or like, I think it was more important to me, like less to sort of prove, because I think there was like a gut sense, right? Like, I know I'm right about this. <laughs> um, but what I all, but I, what I had less knowledge about was the history there, right? Of like, well, it can't, there can't really have been some point where everybody agreed, right? That you just report this mm -hmm. side and you report that side and it's fair. There must have been people who have had the same critique throughout history. And, and after I got fired, I, you know, I heard a lot from people and it was especially reporters of color. And I'm a white person who would contact me and say, you know, I had these exact same critiques and I shared them and I ended up, you know, leaving journalism or I was silenced or, you know, I was fired or the story had repeated itself many, many times. And, um, so the research that I did was focused on like, where are these other people who actually push back against this quote unquote objective framework and push back against both sides and um, who were mm -hmm. pushed out of journalism or their stories weren't um, told, but they were also journalists. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I feel like, and you kind of touched on this already, that both ciderism or both sidesism, whichever one it is, um, has been a big part of the national discussion in the Trump years, um, but it is absolutely not new. Um, so if you had to define it, what would you define it as the syndrome? Yeah, I so I like to call it both sidesism, but I, I don't have a philosophy about that. Um, <laughs> okay. just, that's just the word, the phrase that I used, I think. Um, I think of it as, I guess it's another term for kind of false balance, this idea that everything that someone says that, you know, might be controversial needs to be balanced out by some other side. And mm -hmm. I think it's a problematic sort of mythology of journalistic ethics for two reasons, uh, two sort of core reasons. One is that sometimes it's uh, a straw man, right? It's a, it forces journalists to consider two sides when there's only one side. Um, like 
is Donald Trump um, racist? <laughs> like, is that, uh -huh. you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Is he? <laughs> I was trying to think of a subtle example. I, I feel like that's a very like central, simple example uh, of a thing that doesn't really need to be debated unless you want to get into some weird hair splitting about what is, you know, what makes a person a racist and do they have to like feel it in the core of their soul or just the external parts of their soul or something. <laughs> <laughs> but in any case, is Donald Trump a racist? So there's the problem of like balancing something that's just that's factual or that's really verifiable with uh, quote unquote another side um but then there's the other problem with both sides is i'm of thinking of everything in terms of binaries that there's only two sides right and that's right. a place where it ends up missing lots of really interesting stuff and so often that's conceived as like republicans versus democrats or conservative versus liberal or right versus left um, but it often actually leaves out this sort of spectrum and complexity of viewpoints and ideologies and identities you know on within or beyond those different sides yeah. And it's also kind of like a dereliction of duty, right? Because like, it, who cares about the sides of the story? Like, what is the actual truth? Right. Um, like, I, I care about that a lot more than I care about what like he said, she said type of thing. Or some sort of like false perception of fairness, right? Like, um, like giving voice to every single, I don't know. I just, yeah, it's interesting. Um Lewis, you've looked into really kind of like the history of where this stuff came from quite a bit too. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and sort of what you found? Like how did, you know, this isn't, this isn't just like, a, I don't know, I feel like we have this tendency to think about things like this as, as being sort of how it's always been or like how humans like to tell stories, but that is not the case. So what have you found on that, on that front? So, so much of both sidesism and the kind of pressure to create an impression of two-sided balance really came out of the changing business model for newspapers in the 1800s. And so before really the 1830s, newspapers in general were partisan. I mean, they were one side. <laughs> they were, you know, one or another political party funded them and people who were adherents to those political parties read the paper of their party. And then mm -hmm. when the penny paper was invented and there was this idea that, um, oh, we could, you know, publishers had this idea of a newspaper as a business venture that you would make money off of. And so in order to do that, you'd want to sell it to a lot of people and sell it for cheaper. So papers actually became less expensive and then, you know, make money off of the advertising. And so in an effort to avoid offending or turning off potential advertisers and in an effort to sell a lot of papers, um, publishers started to, to get out of the business of weighing in on partisan politics. Um, but that actually really took a long time too, you know, like it was over many decades that that transition happened and so newspaper life went on and on and on with lots of opinion and lots of, for lack of a better word, you know, one-sided or sort of openly partisan or openly political stuff in mm -hmm. it. Um, and then it, you know, it wasn't until the end of the 1800s, early 1900s that it really sort of settled in as a standard and there was a more professionalized idea of what a reporter is. 
And I think it's really important to, to zoom in on that moment because this is just uh, an example that shows what balance meant or what both sizes of men are look like at that time. You know, the New York Times um, in its very early days it was trying to present itself as this, you know, paper of record that would be the paper that's um, for for everyone and all the news that's fit to print and all, you know, all that kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. uh, a more sort of refined and neutral presentation. And the New York Times would cover lynchings. Um, and this was at the same time as the heroic journalist Ida B. Wells was covering lynchings. And uh, the Times would generally balance lynching stories um, by saying sort of, okay, so someone was lynched, so that's bad um, because it's extrajudicial, it's mob violence. Um, but also that person, usually a black person who was lynched, you know, did something bad. Mm -hmm. They were a criminal. And so it was understandable that the mob had these feelings that they had. And that was mm -hmm. what balance or both sides is like, was literally justifying mob violence against mm -hmm. black people. And so yeah. the sort of core to me of the history of both sides is this like super racist history that's about really justifying um, state sanctioned violence. Yeah. People. Yeah, I, we're definitely going to get into a lot more of that. Before we do that, I want to go back and define just a couple of terms that I think are often um, used in conversation with both sidesism and sometimes maybe even confused with it. Um, and by that, I mean bad faith arguments and whataboutism. Um, so a bad faith argument, as I understand it, is is just like basically someone making an argument that they don't believe in, you know, playing the devil's advocate um, instead of addressing the issues or values head on. Um, it's not a real position. It's just like a proxy position that people take for rhetorical purposes. It's basically somebody being a dick, you know, <laughs> like, it's, so, it's something that like my brother would do in an argument. Um, but it happens, I feel like in journalism all the time, it's kind of like, the Republicans are the masters of this sort of thing when it comes to anything like climate action or COVID action or anything that they don't want to do that doesn't serve their purposes. And Amy, I know that you know what, what about is. So. Oh man, it's my least favorite form of, of uh, presenting stories or, or arguing points. It's this like, well, sure, Trump is racist, but what about Putin, he's more racist, you know, or like, okay, sure, oil companies push propaganda, but what about the Democrats? They also push propaganda, you know, just that, that kind of thing. It's, um, yeah. My favorite is, uh, my favorite is when BP is like, sure, we emit a lot of oil, but don't you have a gas yes. stove in your house? Yes. <laughs> you, you people also have carbon footprints, so... Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I can see how Which, whataboutism has a relationship to both sidesism because you also, yeah. I mean, partisanship is another one that people do that around all the time, you know, sure, this is a partisan move, but what about the, the other party's partisanship? <laughs> right, like, well, right, yes. It? Oh my God. You it's, it's very sophomoric and it is interesting because it all kind of comes back to this like, love affair with binaries, right? Like it always has to be two things. 
opposing one another. And I can't think of that without thinking about the gender binary and how problematic that is. Yeah. But also, wouldn't it be funny if like every time a, tr- a, a cisgender person talked, that it had to be balanced out by a trans person. Just like no matter what you're talking about. Uh That'd be so good. (laughs) That actually would be pretty awesome and we could use a lot more of that. (laughs) (laughs) Or like I used to think about when I worked at Marketplace, like what if every single story that I did, because it's a business and economics show, every single one ended with um, an opinion that was against capitalism, you know, to balance it out and show both sides. Yes. (laughs) So like, totally, you know, on the other hand, Noam Chomsky or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy, if only we could like get you a time machine so you could try that out real quick. (laughs) This is like, oh, you fired me over a medium blog? You had no idea what I had up my sleeve. (laughs) right 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 that was absolutely the least of it (laughs) there's a lot going on in the world right now and the skim is here to help you cut through the noise Meet Skim This, a weekly podcast that makes it easier to understand how the news impacts you. They break down the most complicated stories of the week and add context and clarity to answer the questions that are on your mind. Yeah, and to help explain why what happened this week matters, both in the short term and the long term. Subscribe and listen every Thursday evening on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, my skim story is that when um, we had offices, yeah. um, we shared a floor with the skim. That's hilarious. Um, and yeah. And so my office was uh, mostly women. It was like um, our main office was in one place, but we had grown so much that the communication staff had to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And so they bought us a place like um, we rented a place that was like two blocks away mm-hmm. and we had to share a floor with the skim. Our communications departments are almost always mostly female and ours is no exception and the skim was definitely mostly female why were there two men's rooms and one women's room explain that we had to wait to pee all the fucking time In case you didn't know, um, we have a newsletter in addition to this podcast. It comes out once a week, and it includes a digest of all of the week's greatest climate coverage, as well as a couple of features from me and Amy. That's right. We have we have features and analysis. Sometimes we have Q&As in there. Sometimes we have guest contributors, and uh, we have... A free version that gets you at least one feature and the reading digest and then the paid version gives you everything. Our paid subscribers also get some amount of bonus content and our special hot take cocktails. They do and they get ad free versions of this show. Um, so if you are not signed up, make sure that you do that. Um, the link will be in our show notes and the free version is definitely worth your time. And the premium version is definitely worth your money. I have never been a big white wine person and especially not in the fall, but after becoming a member of first leaf, I'm a convert. 
First Leaf knew exactly what types of whites to send me that felt familiar and delicious and would get me excited about trying something new. I love First Leaf because they make it easy to get personalized wine delivered on my schedule right to my door. Since I choose the day that my shipment comes, I'm never stressing out about missing a delivery, and every selection is backed by First Leaf's 100% satisfaction guarantee. I love how I just have to answer a few questions and they just know what I'll like. No more zoning out in the store looking at a hundred different bottles and trying to pick the right one. Give your palate what it really wants with First Leaf. Go to tryfirstleaf.com slash drilled to sign up and you'll get your first six hand curated bottles for just $44.95. That's T-R-Y-F-I-R-S-T-L-E-A-F.com slash drilled. Tryfirstleaf.com slash drilled. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, EarthBreeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Earthbreeze.com slash drilled. touched on this which is great um which is that like so i think a lot of our listeners in particular probably think of climate change as ground zero for both sizeism um but actually it's really not it really goes back to race um as you've already alluded to with ida b wells um but i i actually think it goes back even further than that i'm sure you probably know a lot more about this than me even um was that the, the way that slavery was covered in the northern press yeah. you know it was kind of like folks would go down there um from the north in the press and be like well i talked to some slaves and they said they were happy so i guess they're happy and i talked to some slave owners 
customers and they said that they were happy. And meanwhile, you've got people like Sojourner Truth and Frederick Douglass being like, no, it's actually really horrible. And you can't imagine the way that people were tortured. And that's why those like slave narratives became so incredibly important. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. And just that like the both both sidesism ha has always adhered to sort of the the dominant status quo thinking about like what is debatable and that throughout the 1800s like yeah whether or not someone should sh whether or not a human should be a slave was a, a debate yeah and so you know to me when we sort of hear this holding up of oh well it's important to tell both sides it's important to tell both sides it's like the the lie of that is shown by just looking at history and that you know that's it's only that's only a really good argument if you just have no moral center right, right. and right. anything and everything is potentially okay right um, right and well and it's like, it's almost always used in defense of the dominant narrative and not of getting marginalized voices heard <laughs> yeah Right. And who gets to decide what the two sides are and who gets to speak for those two sides is another big question. Yeah. Yeah. yeah totally. totally. Yeah. And like you were saying, Mary, in terms of, you know, going all the way back to slavery, like that it, you know, somebody can't tell their side if they're being systemically denied the access to even speak and write and, you know, or if they're if they've already been killed, they can't tell their side. And that, right. man, it just shows like, that's never what that was really about. <laughs> exactly. Right. right, right, exactly. And it, yeah. it prompted the need for other types of presses, right? Like there was the abolitionist press during slavery. Um, there was the black press up until, I don't know, I think it kind of fizzled out in the seventies. There's still, there's still some remnants of it left in the form of like Ebony and Essence and the Amsterdam mm -hmm. News and a few other papers. But it used to be like a very big, and robust um and i know yeah. that amy's done some work around like the labor movement and the birth of of the black press uh yeah i mean i feel like the um the black press and the the sort of investigative work that labor journalists were doing were happening around this similar times where it was like oh actually you know the way that these people with power are behaving is not great for the vast majority of people. And I feel like there was a big um, backlash against that. You know, it was pretty swiftly met with a lot of money being spent on, you know, PR and advertising that could then encourage newspapers to shift away from being critical of industry. Um, and then, you know, I think you had actually, Lewis, in, in, uh, the view from somewhere, this great story about how Ida B. Wells sort of realized, oh shit, there's this, this idea that there are both sides to this is so pervasive that I even thought for a while that like, oh, maybe these people are criminals. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I don't know. Can you, can you say a little bit about that, uh, Lewis, the, the sort of the story um, of, of how Ida B. Wells kind of realize that there was a need to to kind of break out of the the existing press structures yeah so she was a journalist and she was running um the black paper for memphis tennessee and somebody that she knew was lynched 
three men actually were lynched, but she was very close with one of them. Um, a white mob came after them and lynched them and accused them of, uh, basically accused them of starting this, this fight that then the white mob just finished or whatever. That was the story that was being told. And it was through the experience of covering that and then you know, herself and her newspaper becoming a target um, that Wells realized that the stories that she'd heard from around the country about lynching couldn't possibly be true. And I think, you know, she knew it wasn't like she thought lynching was fine, mm -hmm. but, but she was like, oh, this was, you know, people who had done something and then a mob came after them. But in the case of her friends, you know, she knew them and she knew that it was really, it was like a power play. It was economic revenge because they owned a grocery store and it was the owner of the uh, rival white owned grocery store that came after her friend. Mm -hmm. And after she saw that was when she w really set out to investigate what was happening, what the, what the true story was behind these lynchings mm -hmm. so there was a degree to which this kind of uh narrative had yeah had even she had kind of passively like bought into it until she saw it with her own mm -hmm. eyes you know yeah I just want to like just really quickly note the bravery of people like Ida B. Wells and other yeah. black journalists who like own papers at that time, especially in the South, but also in the North. Um, because one of the first things that would happen in, you know, we call them riots, but they were really massacres where white folks were just like, you know what, we're sick of these black folks having shit and we're just gonna burn it all down. The first thing they would go for was the printing press and whoever was running the, the newspaper. And Ida, I think was run out of Memphis at some point, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't she go to New York for a while? Like kind of to get it. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. she never I returned. Mean, her printing press was burned to the ground and yeah. she got a call. She was in New York with T. Thomas Fortune and she got a call, but I guess it was a telegram at the time <laughs> telegram <Right. laughs> that said, you know, don't come back to Memphis. It's not safe for you here. And yeah. she didn't. She stayed in New York. Yeah. It, wow. it wasn't a text message is what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, she didn't find an old-timey text message <laughs> yeah she heard it from the ground that does lead us into um where sort of some of the climate stuff comes from but i i think it's important for people to understand that a lot of the anti-climate action stuff also comes from racism yeah no it totally <laughs> it's <does>. like, <laughs> no, I, I, I think yeah. there's a little more to talk about with this here because that doesn't just live yeah. in the past right like there, so no. there's also this big connection with brown versus board of education right yeah so i i don't know how many people know that the Koch brothers kind of really got radicalized into politics by the Brown versus Board decision. I did um, not know that. That was. I did not. That was know like, that. yeah. There, um, there was a huge kind of um, boom of. I guess we would now call them libertarian, mm -hmm. you know, economists and thinkers, 
um, around the time of the Brown versus Board uh, decision, um, making this argument that this was very, very bad for states' rights. This is a great both sides argument that like, oh, sure, we care about equality, but also what about the rights of the states? Right, right. <laughs> you know? right. Um, so, um, so yeah, also, yeah, like I just, I think who the state is, right? Because like, this is something right. that's actually always bothered me with the way that we talk about the South in this country. It's like white mm -hmm. people get to own the South in a way that's just yeah. like really fucked up. Like when people think of Alabama, they think of white people and not of black people mm -hmm. who like yeah. form that state, right? So like, why why is that like define whose rights are, yeah, it's, it's just so frustrating to me. But I, I think also another thing that's really interesting um, around Brown versus Board of Education and the civil rights movement mm. is how yeah. visual journalism uh, kind of blew wide open yes. the both sides of it, right? Like, I think about right. um, the funeral of Emmett Till. You can't argue yeah. with that photo. Like, there is right. no other side of that story that can make that 14-year-old child coming home in a box disfigured like that. Um, and make that okay. There is mm -hmm. no, like, I remember um, when I was in college and I had this class called Race and Radicalism and we were looking at the 60s. And one of the things we looked at was like the sit-ins at lunch counters. And we watched a few clips of it. And I was like, wait, who's the radical in the scenario? Is it the person ordering lunch or is it the person egging them and screaming at them and spitting at them, right? Like, I think that yes. mob is the radical. And the, yeah. the people ordering lunch are just normal, right? Like, there's no yeah. way to both sides egging a kid walking into a school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such a good point. That like that that like like I think of Brown versus Board and that picture of that woman with just that like vicious face mm -hmm. screaming at a little girl, right. <laughs> you know. And it's like the same way that um, you know police videos have done in more recent history. Like you can't you can't really argue with. Yeah, a video that shows that someone was being an unarmed person was being shot in the back. You know, right, um, right. Actually, right. Lewis, do you want to tell that story? Um, like, I know you had you had this experience in your early uh, NPR, you know, news station reporter days of of um, you know a, a shooting happening and getting information and then sort of realizing over time that that information was coming from a particular vantage point. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think about this so much, just the idea that, you know, someone who's, um, someone who's died, someone who's been killed, like they have been denied mm -hmm. their chance to tell their story, right? So that's just like at the core of this, the story that I'm about to tell for me is like understanding in a really deep, at a really deep sort of visceral level, like how um, hard it is to tell a fair story about someone who's been killed. And in particular, someone who's been targeted by state, state violence or killed by police, which was the story of John Crawford mm -hmm. III, who was a young man, 22 year old, um, who went shopping one evening at a Walmart and he was on the phone um, with his ex um, and they, you know, got it, got into a discussion. He was kind of distracted and he picked up a, um, a BB gun, like an air rifle that was, you know, 
left out a display at Walmart and he was kind of carrying it around. And while he was doing that, um, someone else in the Walmart called the police on him. And this was in Beaver Creek, Ohio, which is a suburb, a very quiet majority white suburb. And um, the police came in like guns blazing and shot and killed John Crawford III uh, while he was still on the phone. And um, I came into work the next morning to the public radio station for that coverage area to AP wire copy. So just like the standard sort of, you know, Dayton, Ohio, Associated Press, and then three paragraphs um, that like explained that situation. But what it, what it said <laughs> was that um, police say Crawford waved a gun at customers and he declined to put the gun down when ordered or something like that. So it had the police sort of story about mm -hmm. what had happened. Um, but no mention of what would come out later, which was that it was a BB gun, it was sold in the store, and that John Crawford was a, a black man. And at the end of the day, he was an unarmed black man who'd been killed, you know, on the spot by these two cops. And later, uh, a lot more came out about it. Mm -hmm. um, but, but what happened in that, in that moment um, with the news coverage was, you know, there I was, and I read this AP copy on the air, and I went back to what I was doing. And then three days later, Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. Right. And everything kind of um, exploded, you know, the media coverage and protests and, and all of it. And people started really looking. Um, John Crawford's family had already spoken out and said, mm -hmm. you know, he wasn't, he was unarmed. He just got shot down. Like, this isn't true what the police are saying, you know, but it wasn't until the sort of protest movement um, around Michael Brown, like, came came back and became the biggest news story everywhere and came back to Ohio and to, to everywhere that, you know, I really had this kind of click moment where I was like, oh my God, I just did, I just did the thing that I am so against. Like, I told this story about someone who had been who had been murdered by police and I made him sound like the perpetrator mm. um, and just really sitting with like that was the day after he mm. died and he so his side of the story you know was <laughs> mm -hmm. in a sense can never be told right but after months of investigation and demanding the release of the videos and following it right. for a really long time like you know, as a news organization, I think that we ended up writing that wrong. Um, but as an individual, there was this kind of participation in like, oh, you just sort of, you say what happened and then you say the police, you know, version of it and then you keep going. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's like an exact, it's like a facsimile of the stuff I was mentioning about lynching. You know, it's the same thing in a way. It's like, oh, but there was a reason why this person was shot and now we move on. Right. The other think about the context of that particular murder is it's just a few weeks after Eric Garner is killed mm -hmm. um, and just I think we kind of forget how close together Eric Garner and Michael Brown's murders were and then there were the ones that were like kind of sprinkled in between that didn't get as much attention and it, it also know. kind of makes me remember what happened this past summer um, with um, 
just like a quick rerun, um, the New York Times op-ed from Tom Cotton calling for more force in the street, um, which really didn't go over well and kind oh, of boy. summoned this huge media reckoning. Um, but it wasn't a, a, an isolated incident because there was also um, seared in my memory, Black reporters in Pittsburgh were told that they couldn't cover the protests because of their assumed uh, biases. Um, and I believe there's like another similar incident at the right. Philadelphia Inquirer where they published something they absolutely shouldn't have. And, um, and it's just like, who gets to make mm -hmm. these decisions about what deserves to like what speech should counter other speech or. Right. Yeah. I mean, the argument in favor of the Tom Cotton op-ed was very much the sort of standard both sides argument of like, well, we, it's important to, you know, sunlight right. is the best disinfectant, blah, blah, blah. Right. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. And, and then yeah, I, that, it's an, it's a really interesting thing to think about in terms of, um, I don't know. I feel like this is maybe both sides adjacent, but this idea of like a platform, and who gets who gets what you know piece of a of the platform and and yeah. sort of the public space? Um, yeah, well, I, I think your, your yeah. point about um, PR, you know, and the sort of PR operations that are they're a big part, I think, of what creates such a distorted sort of playing field. I mean, really, yeah. any power dynamic, right? But I even think about like police unions, you know, fraternal um, order of police. Yes. Yeah the ways in which the kind of uh, racist structure of police unions, police organizations, and police propaganda is always sort of surrounding every narrative about police violence against Black people and police violence against protesters. And that like you have to do sort of mm -hmm. as a reporter that much more to counteract that because it's so, this idea yeah. that you know, the police are just like doing their best and reacting naturally to you mm -hmm. know, uh, fear and all this stuff is so ingrained that the only fair way to report it is sometimes to actually not repeat what the police have said, you know? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's interesting because I feel like we yeah. started to have this very public conversation about what is objectivity, uh, what is this like false balance and who is it serving this summer? How did that feel for you, Lewis, as somebody who was, you know, kind of early to that debate? Yeah, well, but then it's funny because I feel like, okay, so like I was real, I was, you know, I felt salty um, about, mm -hmm. about some aspects of that, um, particularly among like, you know, I don't know, people that I used to work with and stuff, mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, but it's also sort of the whole point of my book and my podcast is that it's like, I, I didn't c come up with it. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's always right. There. Right. It's not, yeah. You know, it's really not me. And if anything, like the, the black press and black journalists have been the leaders in that conversation. And I've often thought that part of why my story got sort of the amount of attention that it did is, you know, in part, cause I was in national media, but also because I was this white trans person and there's this sort of, um, novelty to that and like interest in that um you know that uh this kind of silencing like most often happens to people of color so just feeling very aware for myself of that mm -hmm. power dynamic like i just feel pissed off that people have to die that people mm -hmm. have to die in horrible horrible ways mm -hmm. um in order for um 
folks who have been complacent, you know, in newsrooms to go, oh, maybe we should talk about this, right. you know, right. That, that makes me like viscerally. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's totally um, understandable. But also yeah. been through, like that was true at the time that I was fired. That was true years before that. And so it's like, but I do keep coming around, you know, trying to hold at the center of it. Like what's the, um, what's the true offense here? Right. And in that sense, like I have these days where I feel sort of salty, like, oh, I lost my job, whatever. But it's like, um, I'm not the, uh, the offense against me isn't like the core of what makes this so um, upsetting and egregious, you know, and it's people's bodies and people's lives. And there's all this death, right? Mm-hmm. There's all these, all these trans people, all these trans women of color, like die before the mainstream yeah. media has said, oh, maybe we should consider like, them right right <laughs> consider their side you know right lewis i'm curious to have you kind of explain um this thing that you've been calling mm-hmm. you know journalism with a purpose as sort of like the way out of both sidesism um because i think you know we've we've talked a lot on this show about how some journalism and journalists get branded as quote unquote activists or advocates as as almost like a derogatory discrediting kind of thing. Um, and I'm curious to hear you kind of explain your take on that. Yeah, well, one of my close collaborators and friends, Mia Henry from Freedom Lifted, uh, we do workshops that we co-facilitate together with journalists about power and oppression and you know, the history of racism in journalism and then sort of the path forward uh, to the part that you're asking about. And something that Mia always says is, um, you know, we, we all have power. So we talk a lot about that and power comes in different forms, but what's important is how we use our power. And so um, from any position of power, whether it's, you know, privilege within an organization or a privilege that you were, were born with, like whiteness um, or uh, the power of having a platform, that we're always using that power either to work for oppression or to work for liberation. Mm-hmm. And so there's no sort of journalism without a purpose and journalism with a purpose, right? All journalism is doing something <laughs> in terms of power and in terms of like how it right. relates to power dynamics. And so, but if we're not consciously trying to undo oppressive power structures, we're probably upholding them. And, and so that's the piece of like, once folks can get their heads around that, it's like, it's no longer a discussion about whether or not we bring values to bear in journalism, it's which values. And then we can talk about, you know, the practice of anti-racist journalism and the practice of, um, I don't know, pro-world journalism. <laughs> <thing about politics. laughs> um, I would like to live on, you know, on this earth. Right. Um, or like pro-water yeah. or pro-air journalism or pro-black journalism, you know, right. and that um, there's a mm-hmm. hell of a lot of anti-black journalism that might not identify itself that way. But mm-hmm. anyway, you all get where I'm going with that. Yeah. So, you know, my thing isn't to go out and tell people exactly what their own ethical code or values should be, but to like, let's start with just admitting that we're all operating from a frame and then defining what that frame is can really help us, right, to be transparent and responsible and um, non-binary in our thinking about sides and fairness and, mm-hmm. open. and I just remember so clearly I did this story once about uh, the paper cup industry and mm-hmm. I got into 
sort of the reality that uh, paper cups have been promoted as this environmentally friendly alternative to styrofoam because styrofoam can't be recycled. Um, But most paper cups can't be recycled either. Like you're just gumming up the system when you put them in the recycling in most places. Because they're usually like coated yeah, or something, yeah. right? Like so. if you live in New York <laughs> yeah. City or mm-hmm. at the time that I did this story, that was the only place that could actually process paper cups in their recycling, like paper cups from a restaurant or whatever, um, from a fast food place. So anyway, I did this story and um, I got all these people like lobbying me about what was in the story because it went on Marketplace. It was a national piece in the end. And in particular, I remember this like super creepy call afterwards from a woman, she called my like desk at my tiny radio station in Ohio to tell me that, um, you know, I really needed to better represent the the viewpoint that styrofoam is recyclable in some cases. Is it? <laughs> styrofoam, like styrofoam <laughs> viewpoint. I was like, had a voice, had an advocate. And so just I, like, I <laughs> So just like as a, it was so real though that like literal styrofoam has an advocate, right? And like story after story after story is done about like people in prison or like, you know, immigrants and like nobody's calling like that and being like, hey, you need to really tell what's going on from this point of view. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. People have someone who like trolls every reporter, presumably in the country to make sure that they don't misrepresent quote unquote (laughs) styrofoam. So we should uh, maybe talk about the science part now, <laughs> because if you're wondering how this connects to climate change. So, I mean, yeah, the, like the, the sort of most obvious way that this connects to climate, um, I guess, apart from the fact that, you know, um, definitely oil companies really hammered this need for, for both sides coverage from like the 80s onward of of climate change is um, in kind of interpretations of science. And we see this, I mean, you see it all the time in climate. You're seeing it so much in uh, COVID stuff now too. It's this idea that like um, there are, you know, at least two, if not more sides to every kind of scientific claim too. And and I feel like there again, it kind of comes back to um, a certain amount of of literacy and understanding that you know, the language of science is uncertainty and like no scientist will ever say anything is like a hundred percent caused by another thing or is like a hundred percent proven. (laughs) And, and that really opens the door for, for these kinds of, um, you know, both sides arguments and also a lot Mm -hmm. of what about ism, um, the, the big way that shows up in, kind of the scientific realm, both in public health and in climate is, is that people will say, you know, okay, sure, CO2 is causing climate change, but what about volcanoes? And what about sunsets? Right, right. And, you know, all these other things, or like the tobacco companies did it all the time. They were like, there's no way you could prove that it's just these cigarettes that cause this person's cancer. Like, what about their weight? What about this? And what about, you know, so, um, and yeah, that's gets... also interesting because that's where it really started. That's where like both scientism and science denial really became uh, weaponized was with tobacco, right? 
Well, the oil companies were using both sides arguments for a long time before they got into science denial. This is something I feel like gets um, combined a bunch and then and then like repeated. So like, I mean, the the oil and coal companies and the tobacco companies, they were all really kind of like developing PR strategies at the same time. And they sort of like traded tactics a lot. Um, but the oil, the oil and coal guys did use a lot of like kind of both sides arguments mm-hmm. for environmental issues and labor issues pretty early on. But it was the tobacco guys that really like um, honed in on science denial as like a, a particular flavor of it that the oil companies then used to. Um, but yeah, those, I mean, honestly, this is why I talk about the PR stuff so much is that like really what happened is like a handful of PR guys helped multiple industries at the same time come up with and use these tactics. And then they all sort of Mm. like traded tips. Um, So it's, it's hard to say like, oh, this industry perfected it. And then that industry copied it. But I do think that tobacco probably spent the most on, on science denial early on. And then oil companies got in on it too. But I mean, pharmaceutical companies, they're like ridiculous for this stuff. Um, they're all, you know, it's like Monsanto, the chemical lobby, mm-hmm. they all do this stuff. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's a, a gross modern version of. Yeah. And of it. it's also like why we decided to do this show and target it on the media, um, which I think a lot of people like, are, even mm-hmm. maybe some of our listeners aren't all the way clear on is um, when the fossil fuel company decided to, you know, sell his shit (laughs) Um, really their main target was the media um and to win like political will like that's the reason why we can't get climate action is because there's no political will and political will is built in the media and that is why the media has been targeted so hard and that's why it's so important to look at climate change as as a conversational issue as a media issue just as much as it is a science Mm -hmm. issue or justice issue or any other issue because all of those things intersect Yeah, I do feel, I feel like a lot of people don't realize how much media coverage gets used to build political will or to, or to provide cover for certain types of policies, right? Like if, if a politician wants to go against um, police reform, for example, and a bunch of op-eds appear, you know, saying, yeah, we don't really need police reform, we need, you know, to crack down on crime right. that like right. that helps them, you know? <laughs> so yeah. Because also um, kind of the problem with relying solely on science um, because the science reporters, I was reading about mm. this, that like, um, yeah. it's still true today, but especially was true in the beginning when we were covering climate change in the media, it was given to the science reporters to cover it. And those are not exactly the people who follow mm-hmm. the money. Mm-hmm usually. Um, And so they're not going to figure out that this scientist that they're interviewing on the other side um, is funded by like Chevron or the American Petroleum Institute. That is very true. That's very true. And especially because so much, um, 
some, some, I want to be careful about this because I don't want to get a bunch of emails from climate scientists being like, how dare you insinuate that I'm on the payroll of Exxon? But a lot of the climate research centers at universities in this country are majority funded by oil companies. So they have a preference for it. Like this is a way that they will kind of influence what comes out, right? It's not necessarily just as clear cut as climate denial, they'll fund a study on all of the other causes mm. of climate change. Um, or they'll um, fund like more studies on carbon capture than on any other type of solution because carbon capture enables the status quo, right? So like, and I, I think this happens in all different realms too. It's just, um, again, going back to the Koch brothers, like this was a key part of their apparatus early on was to, um, you know, this idea that we need think tanks and we need academic research institutions and we need a media strategy to really like control the entire mm-hmm. information system. Um, and, and to introduce this idea of like there being an, an equal and equally valid kind of other yeah. side. Yeah, and I think that a big part of the reason that the climate um, space and climate journalism, climate mo- the climate movement at all, has kind of fallen prey to both sidesism so easily and to bad faith arguments so easily is because it's been so white, you know? Like, because for me coming into it as mm-hmm. a Black person, yeah. I would see these bad faith arguments and be like, you don't recognize that they don't fucking mean what they're saying? You know what I mean? Like, you're up here arguing with charts yeah. and graphs. They don't mm-hmm. fucking care if you prove them wrong, this isn't about being right. Slavery was wrong from day fucking one. They didn't care. This whole thing of like ignoring the root of it as like a power and justice issue for so long was just so, it's just such a bad way to to talk about it. And it's kind of like, you can Um, tell that they've never had to fight for their lives before because it's kind of like, well, if I show you the data Mm -hmm. and show you the proof and show you that you are putting my life at risk, surely you'll do the right thing of course you don't and so now be like oh no they want to kill you it's like oh shit yeah yeah they want to kill you so i don't know um (laughs) lewis what what does this look like from from your perspective to look at like (laughs) the climate movement falling for this sort of shit well i i mean just kind of riffing on what you were just saying mary that I, i feel like I've been thinking a lot about the theory of change for journalism. So like, how does journalism understand mm-hmm. it's, it's the effect that it has in the world. Mm-hmm. And I do think that so much of the sort of assumption about both sides journalism, or, you know, you just present the facts and then you present these other people who don't believe in facts or whatever, you know, and then everyone will sort it out and they'll get, they'll do the right thing. Um, I've come to think of it as a trickle down theory of change Mm. that like you speak, Mm. uh, yeah, you speak with like quote unquote objective facts and you present both sides and you speak to people with power. So there's this like assumed audience of sort of um, white uh, upper middle-class people or an assumed audience of people who are going to go vote or whatever. And then those people are going to hear the facts and they're going to go do the right thing. And to me, there's like this whole sort of reorientation that needs to happen around what journalism is and how it works. Um, Back to the kind Mm -hmm. of models that we get from the movement press, you Mm -hmm. know, from the the black press and from the gay movement press, 
mm-hmm. that's like we we talk to people uh, about the information that that they need to know that's relevant to their lives, and we don't pretend to present both sides, right? We speak to people from a point of view, and we bring them information you know, that's from and with and for the community. And I think there's actually really strong, great traditions of this in some local journalism too. Um, But that the Mm -hmm. effect of that kind of journalism, you know, sort of grassroots or community driven or movement journalism, um, the theory of change is, uh, is a ground up instead of a trickle down theory of change. And Mm -hmm. so the idea of what's going to happen after someone reads your story is totally different, right? Because you, that's someone who's in relationship to that story already. That's somebody who, you know, maybe mm. you have a connection to or who has a connection to the framework that you're speaking from. And that person might be motivated to action by that, right? And it's a different, there's just a whole different set of assumptions than like we present this sort of centrist neutral audience with you know, this side and that side, and then they figure it out. And mm-hmm. I feel like with climate specifically, yeah. it's like um, w- w- way beyond the point at which we need a kind of movement journalism orientation to covering climate, right? Like covering the action that people are taking on climate, you know, from the ground up and covering not just the like negative impacts of climate change, but like how people are living and how what people's traditions and mythologies are around the earth that have been pushed to the side by colonization and what I mean there's just like a million I could just rant on and on about all the stories all the ways of framing those stories that could be told um, but the point being that if we're in this sort of narrow framework of it's this side and that side and we present the sides and then the the you know two parties have a debate and then they go and do the right thing like that whole system is broken (laughs) broken. you know journalism is broken in the same places that democracy is broken and so you know i don't care who who goes about it first or how we go about it but that we have to like rebuild the collective spirit of that and the sort of movement spirit of that i think from the ground up for it to work Mm -hmm. definitely yeah yeah Thank you to Lewis Wallace for joining us today. You can and should follow him on Twitter. He is at Lewis Pants, and Lewis is L-E-W-I-S. Pants. Pants. Lewis Pants. Yeah. You can also check out his work on his website, LewisPants.com. <laughs> I love that. And again, his book is called The View From Somewhere. His podcast has the same name. And he does... Frequency. Yes, that's right. We distribute it through Critical Frequency, which is cool. Um, And he does a bunch of events, and he's doing a whole bunch of trainings right now about power in journalism. So if you're interested in that, check out the website for his schedule. We'll drop links to all of that stuff in the show notes, and of course, a link to sign up for our newsletter too, which you should do. 